Radio. This is Catholics Read on cradio.org.au. Hello and welcome to this episode of Catholics Read. I'm Luke. And I'm Kiara. And I'm Victoria. And I'm kind of recovering from a cold or something, so if I sound a little bit more nasally than usual, or if I randomly cough, or if you hear me drinking water or something, that's why. Um, so if my voice gives out, it's probably a good thing, because I always talk too much, and it gives the girls a t- chance to actually talk. Um, so I might actually do that right now and take, a, <laughs> take advantage of that and let them talk. Um, so we're looking at Leaf by Niggle, which is a Tolkien book, a uh, short story. And since this was Kiara's choice, I'll give it over to Kiara. Um, So Leaf by Niggle is a unique uh, piece of Tolkien literature. It was published after his death, like a lot of the extemporaneous literature around Lord of the Rings. And it's a allegory, which is highly unusual for Tolkien, since he, quite frankly, despised allegory as a literary technique, because he thought it was... Well, he thought it was a bit stupid and it was far too easy for writers to do. It wasn't one of those excellent advanced techniques and it duped the readers. So, so he used to make, he, him, and, him and C.S. Lewis used to have great arguments over the use of allegory. It's and so like Tolkien his... wrote one just to prove he could do it. <laughs> but it's not like his work isn't completely unallegorical. He would argue that it is. I would is. say it's anagogical, perhaps. Meaning? Meaning allegorical... Um, has one solid thing and uh, it symbolises another solid thing. So I would say um, uh, the institution uh, in Leaf by Niggle symbolises purgatory, whereas I think anagogic... Ana- I don't know what the word is. Anagogy? Is that the word? Anagogy is, is one... is um, something something solid representing something quite spiritual. Um, uh, that's one okay, of the four ways you can read the we gospel. Probably, so it we could, could probably be figured out by looking up the Greek or something. Probably, but it's one of the four ways of reading the gospels. You can have allegorical, anagogical, um, tropological, and historical. Just putting well, it out I there. thought it was eschatological. Oh, well, maybe we should Google it. Yeah, let's let's do this. I love having a computer like, in this um, like studio with us. Into the episode, and we're, and we're already Google. googling the four senses of scripture. I'm pretty okay. sure it was. We're talking about leaf by niggle, by yeah. the way. Um, uh, just back on, so back to. Sorry, I had to get that out there. Sorry, Kiara. <laughs> no, no, no. That's a good. That's a, that's a fair point. But if you to take like to take a great example of an allegory, as you know, you look at CS, look at C.S. Lewis, The Chronicles of Narnia. All those seven books are basically that's an allegory wonderful. of the Bible. And you know, and it's and they're great. They're, they're also classic pieces of literature. So, um, and but Tolkien also just could not abide by it. But he still wrote one anyway, mm. just to prove a point. And mercifully, it's a short story because <laughs> I have no time to read big hefty novels. Um, Ain't nobody got time for that. And so I really enjoyed this little story. But Leaf by Niggle is supposed to be an allegory of Tolkien's creative process, and. Um, it's quite fascinating. It starts at the, the central character is a man called Niggle who lives in an English borough somewhere out just outside a country town. And he's a painter. And I may, if I may quote, not a successful one, partly because he had many other things to do. Most of these he thought were a nuisance, but he did them fairly well when he could not get out of them, which in his opinion was far too often. Um, also a minor political point he's making too. The laws in his country were rather strict. There are other hindrances too. For one thing, he was sometimes just idle and did nothing at all. 
been there. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so it follows the story of Niggle, who starts painting the starts painting this picture. And it's his, you know, he pours everything into it. His heart, his soul, everything he has, he pours into creating this magnificent picture that started off with a leaf, which turned into a tree, which then turned into this incredibly detailed landscape. Um, and then his neighbour, Mr. Parrish, who has a limp, um, his wife gets sick. So Niggle has to run to the doctor. And turns and the builder. Yes, and the builder because his roof because Mr. Parrish's roof is leaking and he does not want doesn't want to use the canvas to um, patch his neighbor's ceiling, which would ruin his painting. So eventually, it all eventually Niggle himself gets sick because he's out in the cold and the wet. And a oh yes, and to mention at the at the beginning of this book, Tolkien mentions very very pointedly that Niggle has a journey to go on at some point, but he's been delaying departing. Mm. And so eventually he gets, you know, he's he's sick and he's ra- frantically trying to finish his painting before he has to go on this journey. And then the policeman shows up and says, time to go on your journey and we're going to take your canvas and use it to patch Mr. Parrish's roof, much to Niggle's dismay. So off he goes on his journey. He starts off in a hospital somewhere. You know, it gets a little bit... It gets a little gets bit on ha- a train and then journeys and they're like, oh, you didn't bring anything with you? Oh, we'll just send you to the hospital, which makes... Zero no, 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 no. It, I think oh, it's no. Sorry, I, Luke didn't read it properly. No, sorry. These were just my thoughts. The fact that the porter says, "Oh, you don't have any luggage. You have to go to the infirmary or the the workhouse, whatever it is." I think is like a symbol for. I suppose. Well, no. No, no, we're not no, going no, there. No, 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 no. I just think maybe we should say. Oh, we okay. Bog down before we even get to the. Okay, that's true. I'm yeah. so sorry. So, but I think it has a point. Yes. Okay, so back to it go- later. So he goes through. So he goes through the infirmary, and then he's worked like a dog till he thinks he's dead, and then he gets put in a forest where he has a little house and he builds a, you know, and in, it's this great forest that he realizes it's his painting, which is so cool. You know, it's his painting, and he's alive in his painting, and is ha- and has a grand old time. And then Mister Parrish joins him, um, and Mister Parrish helps Niggle dig and plant a garden because Niggle wasn't very good at gardening. Before his journey, so Mr. Parrish build, helps him build a cottage and a lovely garden, and then Niggle realizes he has to keep going. He has to, you know, he's got further adventures of, you know, adventures afield beyond the borders of his painting, which were the mountains. And um, the story ends with Mr. Parrish's wife coming to live with him in the cottage in the forest, and all sorts of other people coming to visit them. And then Niggle go rides off into the sunset, or walks off into the sunset. I can't remember which. Guided by a shepherd into the sunset. That's right. Guided by a shepherd into the sunset, which is a very subtle, <laughs> very, very subtle <laughs> who of could Tolkien. That be? I wonder who that could be. Which, speaking of which, of the I wonder who that could be, we could probably look into now. I mean, the frustrating thing about allegory, especially by a man who Hated. doesn't like allegory, <laughs> um, is that you spend the whole time thinking, what is this an allegory for? What's he talking about here? And I think there's a lot like, I mean, I have my own idea of what it was talking about. And it was kind of confirmed by a happy coincidence that I was editing a talk today uh, that would probably be going up yesterday if you're listening to this on Tuesday, um, which is when this is published. Yeah, I know. We're in the future. (laughs) And... Whoa. (laughs) 
where the woman who's giving the talk speaks about uh, Tree and Leaf, which is one of the editions that this uh, Leaf by Niggle is in, and it's coupled with um, Tolkien's famous essay on fairy stories, which is what it's called. Uh, and anyway, she kind of talks about about uh, this and how it's analogous to Tolkien's idea about the writing process and its kind of greater application. And so I guess what I want to talk about, we didn't really talk to Kiara about this beforehand, but Victoria and I were talking about beforehand um, what on earth this was an analogy for. I mean, it seems to kind of, to me, have this idea that... I guess what what I'll um, bring up is... This very kind of interesting idea within Catholicism and something that you don't really hear about very much, um, but this idea of what's the point of our lives? I mean, it seems like an obvious thing to bring up in a religion, but the what's the point of our lives in the sense of our temporal existence now, prior to our death? Um, And according to uh, the talk, this, this essay on fairy stories, he speaks a lot, Tolkien speaks a lot about how our creative process our creativity is participation in god's creative activity while god is the perfect creator he simply um wills something and it happens we don't have that advantage but we do we are allowed to participate in that process also because we're in the image and likeness of god we are therefore able to be creative we're not the creator but we are creative and and because we're not the creator we can't create something perfect in a sense but in the resurrection, um, we, or our, our, uh, want to avoid using the word works because it might sound like I'm making a different point to what I am. Um, but our creative efforts, not just in terms of stories, but in terms of our efforts during our life, are perfected. They're perfected by God in the resurrection. And I think that this story, in a very interesting and strange way, is kind of touching on this idea that, like uh, Niggle's painting, he never finishes it. Um, he never quite gets it done. And he uh, can never quite capture exactly what's in his mind's eye as he's painting it. Yeah, so he's always yeah. going over it and fixing it. And But it's perfected. Uh, it's, it becomes eventually perfect after what I believe to be his death, um, which is represented in the story as him being taken away suddenly to go on this journey. Um, I'm not sure what you thought about that, Kiara. Did you kind of have an idea about, about that? Because... Victoria and I kind of agreed. We agreed. That, well, we disagreed that for a was, while, and then, a and then Luke told me what he thought, and I completely that agreed. it was a bit like <laughs> the four stages: his kind of like existence in the cottage, um, his time in the infirmary, his time at in in the forest, and then going off to the mountains are basically his life, his death, and then time in purgatory. His, I might be wrong here. I may be treading into very bad territory here, but his existence in a kind of heaven of sorts it may have still been purgatory i'm not sure but heaven of sorts where he gets the light treatment in the forest um and then finally going into the mountains which is the the kind of beatific vision the um after the general resurrection Mm. i don't know what you thought about that but i i mean see i'm always wary of taking things literally with tolkien Mm. and Mm. i mean in one way and i think he would try and actually not be as obvious with his allegory even though the whole point of an allegory is to clearly have, you know, talk about one thing whilst meaning something else. So, you know, to go back to the Chronicles of Narnia, see it, you know, the last battle is literally 
the exact book of Revelation step by step. You read the book of Revelations and you go read the last battle. It They're almost identical. And you, it, that's a very, very clear connection that C.S. Lewis wanted to make. Whereas Tolkien, I don't think, mm. likes to be as literal. He likes to keep us on our toes. He likes to, us to keep us thinking. So I think it's probably... In one way, it could literally be about death and the afterlife, you know, purgation in the afterlife and then finally um, eternal rest. But it could also be just a literal allegory of the, st- of the stages you go through in the creative process. And, like, I work, in a cre- I work in a creative industry. I'm a graphic designer. I, you know, I've been painting and drawing and, do, you know, doing stuff my whole, you know, my whole life ever since I could hold a pencil. And I really related to those those steps. Like you start off, you try, you you've got this concept in your head, you've got this idea. That's Niggle with his big canvas, trying to you know rapidly trying to build this concept and you know build this concept. And it's he does Niggle does it literally, but it's also this you know it's also a mental thing for a lot of creative people. They have this like they have this thing in their mind that they you know that they kind of ha- they don't have a lot of time to put it together. And before they have to execute it, and then they can't. Then you start executing it, and then you go through this horrible process of, you know, try, you know, being pulled away from it, being put back into it. Um, it's it's quite purgative, where you pour everything into this drawing or into this thing, and you can get quite, you get emotionally, you get very emotionally attached to it, and. Um, but then it's kind of, but then finally it comes to life, and then you let it go. And it goes beyond you. You're like, you look at the mm. great works of visual art in history. They have a life way beyond what Michelangelo, what Picasso, what Leonardo, like, you know, name any other great master. Claude Lorraine. There you go. Um, you know, their story, you know, their stories, their paintings, their music has a life beyond anything that they could ever imagine. And it's constantly replayed, revisualized retold generation after generation and that is what i think you know is that's the that's the divine spark i think in all at the essence of all creativity is that ability to take it beyond and to invite other people into the vision as well like mr parish comes in and contributes in a real you know in a real way to that little cottage in the forest that one small part and so I think I think in a way it's a bit more like my my interpretation of it was a lot more sort of cere- cerebral. Is that a word? Was a, I don't know. Yeah, of course it's a word. Um, is it the right word? Um, um. Yeah, I I saw it and I related it directly to my experience of being in the creative process and the purg- especially the purgation mm. that you kind of go through to bring the you know to bring it to to bring whatever you're doing to its final form. And I'm sure anyone who has ever tried to write a novel from start to finish, anyone who has ever tried to write an original piece of music from start to finish, um, they go they have that they have. They have stages like that. They have stages like that where they think nothing's working and they just want to tear their hair out and throw the whole thing, the whole damn thing out. But, you know, but they don't. They keep going. And I don't know. That's how I interpreted the story. That's how I interpreted the story. But there are some very real religious um, elements to it in a way, which is very much in keeping with Tolkien's very devout... Catholicism. Well, the thing about Tolkien was that I think I remember reading something about the Lord of the Rings in that he didn't even mean it to have any religious symbolism at all. It was just his life and his passion and his knowledge of the world 
accidentally seeping through into his literature, like, you know, having a Christ-like figure, having a priestly figure, that sort of stuff. Is that true? Well, for Tol- like for Tolkien, there was no distinction between there was no distinction between his faith, between his um, art, which mm. is his writing, and between his knowledge of the world. Like that's the th- like that's one of the great, I think, sad. You know, one of the terrible things about the modern world is we try and compartmentalize people. We try and com- mm. compartmentalize ourselves. So we have religion, our religion, and our beliefs in a nice little box, and we open that on Sundays. You know, we have our work. You know, and our you know, and our intellectual passions in a nice little box, and we open that five nine to five five days a week. We have our family in a little family and relationships over in a little mm. box, and we open that when we get home from work. Like that wasn't the way the world was for Tolkien. You know, his whole self was poured into Lord of the Rings, and that includes and to all of his works. Like if you go beyond Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, you get into the Silmarillion, you get into the Children of Hurin, and all these other stories that he wrote. It was just himself, yeah, in its entirety. And I mean, the other thing to note with Lord of the Ring, with go on, Luke, you've got a point. Oh no, I was going to say that. Do you think that it just just kind of clicked to me then? Um, that really, what is, like that? This is kind of a. It seems quite obvious from the outset that this seems to be a um, a reflection on his writing of the Lord of the Rings and its various mm-hmm. pieces of attached literature. That I guess what he's saying there, you know, I'm glad that you said that because I didn't really understand this point so much before. But that in the end, um, it was not just his own vision that created the Lord of the Rings, but it was all of his other works, <laughs> just knocking over water bottles here, all of his other um, efforts, even outside of his obvious writing of the Lord of the Rings, contributed to the end result. Mm. Yeah. Um, which I find to be really fascinating and interesting because I think that, yeah, any great artist, you know, like the the professionalization of art would be horrible because it you know it wouldn't make any sense you can't kind of like i mean there's a lot of jokes about stereotypes you know with mm-hmm. artists that the they're flaky just like, artist yeah yeah but i mean there i guess there is in a sense a lot of um a lot of truth to that because the artist has to be it has to consume their whole person um in order for them to either a modern view of art, which is like a self-reflection, or a more uh, classical view of art, which is, you know, the reflection of nature in the outside world. Both of those things require the whole person, the whole person's experiences to be able to create them. And that's why Parrish is involved Mm. in the end with the creation of his work and the perfection of his work, Um, that it's not just about him and his vision. You know, him and his vision just got him, you know, an incomplete canvas. But once everything else got involved, God, those who were around him, it created the perfect mm. image. And if you, and I mean, just from my, I mean, I'm a massive, just, just for clarification, in case you haven't picked this up, <laughs> I'm a massive Tolkien person. I have been in love with to- the world, you know, the Lord of the Rings world since I was 11 years old. And I know everyone's going to, you know, I'm such a, you know, millennial. I saw the movie first because Lord of the Rings was a little bit too difficult for me to read at age 11. That is yeah, not, I know. That is not, uh, your, that's, fault. That's no. not your fault. But, you know, thankfully I had, you know, Peter Jackson came along and made those movies and they captured my imagination. When I was 17, I finally read the series, um, you know, the trilogy. And it's just one of those things that has... F- f- it is one of these pieces of literature that has formed my psyche more than anything else. So I've learned... I've gone and done... A, you know, spent a lot of time learning about this man and learning about the way he operated. And the thing you've got to remember, Lord of the Rings was the end piece. It's not the beginning of the world... You know, the Tolkien world. It's actually the end piece. 
all this other stuff came before it. You've got stuff like the Silmarillion, which I have read and is just amazing. Um, and you know, and then you have all these other stories like Tales of Be- uh, Beleriand. Uh, Bel- I should be able to pronounce these, but I'm not. I'm not very good with that. Sorry, you um, read them. You don't. You don't say them. <laughs> no, well, yes, um, that's my problem. And you know, all the you know stuff like Leaf the Light Hobbit, Ball, obviously. The Hob- you know, the Hobbit's part of it. Um, you know, all the all this other stuff he actually had thought about and had in his head, and some of it in draft form on paper. You know, long before he even started writing Lord of the Rings, and that's what a lot of you know when when you kind of put that in context, you can see you know Lord of the Rings was so perfect and so awesome was because it was the end result. Mm. of all this creative process. So Lord of the Rings is that, in a way, is that world that Niggle, that forest Niggle steps mm. into and becomes mm. this world, whereas, um, you know, stuff like the Silmarillion and Unfinished Tales and all these other stuff are kind of his unfinished canvas, mm. if that makes sense. So this is a really personal story for Tolkien as well. This is really kind of breaking down exactly how he wrote you know, how he wrote his world and how he brought it to life and shared it with millions upon millions of people. And for the record, Lord of the Rings is still the number one favourite book in the world. Like, as in most people. Yeah, they've done polls. No, 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 they've done polls. And it annoys a lot of literature, you know, it annoys literature professors to no end when they do polls on the internet or whatever and everybody comes back and says Lord of the Rings is the favourite book of all time. But the funny thing is, like, what I was just, you know, going back to the the talk that I was um, doing today, you know, Tolkien and Lord of the Rings came up multiple times in reference to other authors. So one, uh, one literature professor... Literature professor, rather, um, said that the where have I where have I got it? I've probably written it down somewhere. Ah, oh, here we go. Said that that they have read pretty much every great work of the twentieth century. You know, and it's mostly you know it's good, but it's mostly deconstructionist rubbish. Mm. Um, and that the two, <laughs> from the, the two, professor's mouth, deconstructionist rubbish. That wasn't that wasn't his words. That okay. was my words. That, that, that was Luke um, summarizing. That was me summarizing what he said. And that the two the two things that stand the two authors or the two works that stood in the end were something that I will not be able to pronounce properly. But uh, Kristen Londestrada. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's what, a book did he, by, what did he write? It's a, it's a book. Oh, it's a book. It's a oh book no, really. <laughs> for, uh, called Sigrid Unset. Oh, uh, yes, yes, Sigrid Unset. I know her. She's, hmm. yeah, anyway. She's a convert to Catholicism. Anyway, so she wrote this, cool. this series. It's a series of three books. And anyway, that and The Lord of the Rings stood alone. You know, another point they said that the greatest, uh, there was a the cited like um, a poll or something of the greatest uh, science fiction or fantasy writers of all time. And number one uh, was, was, of course, Tolkien. And the second one was another Catholic who's a little bit more obscure um, but they're still alive today and apparently is an absolute master of the English language. But, I mean, the consistent thing across this is, first of all, Catholic converts seem to be always coming up here. And secondly, <laughs> that Tolkien in the 20th century is just an absolute giant and stands alone. And I think partially, you know, my joke about deconstruction is rubbish, but the fact that, you know, all of those things might have had technical flair uh, and they may have been fashionable in terms of literature, but what Tolkien created um, and is possibly a result of the creative process that he describes here and the arduous process that it was, was something that is, I guess, um, 
don't want to say exists out of time because that's a bit weird, but it's, it's time. No, but it, ta- yeah. it taps it's a in. It's piece taps- of literature that is relevant no matter who you are or even if this is a thousand years into the future. Like, you look at all the stories that have survived for thousands and thousands of years of all the things that humans could have written down. We have things like the Odyssey, the Iliad. Beowulf. Beowulf. You know, all these great pieces of literature do one thing. They touch the human psyche and imagination, no matter who you are or where you come from, or even if you speak the language, Hmm. the original language of which it was written. All those stories tell us about who we are and what our purpose in life is. And that's, you know, that's kind of what Leaf by Nickel does in a microcosm. Hmm. In a microcosm of, what, 40 pages? Yeah. 30 pages. Yeah, it's intense. Yeah, Not many pages at all, 30 exactly, I think. But it's fantastic because I think I do like, you know, I'm just thinking about these things now, which is good because it's fresh in my mind. But this kind of idea that, you know, what you're talking about here, Kiara, with the um, looking at it as, as an allegory for the creative process, but also looking at it as what Victoria and I were talking about mm. as an allegory for God's creative pro- process and our participation in it, you know, I'm, I'm slowly discovering... First of all, I think that's that's brilliant, and I think this is a great book to, to bear that out. Um, you know, there's some interesting points in there where my interpretation, I admit, falls down. There's some things that I just can't understand in terms of that allegory. But I think that, that kind of highlights the brilliance of Tolkien because it's showing... That's what he wants that to do. He wants, yeah, exactly. He wants to do that. He doesn't want you to think, I'm just doing an allegory for X. Like, he's even though it is an allegory, he's trying to, to um, put in those points that make you think well, maybe it's not. Um, I've forgotten what I was going to say. <laughs> going on to the uh, allegorical sort of divine the divine allegory interpretation yeah yeah i just think i i think that it's quite um i guess i just want to say that it was quite brilliant that he's been able to to weave both of those things together and that the creative process can be analogous i guess to something that's much greater that us as humans you know we can't create anything out of nothing we can't do that. It's impossible. It's like that great joke with the scientist who says to God, "I can do any. I can do anything, God. I can create, you know, absolutely anything." And God says, "All right, let's have a competition. Who can make the who can make the best, you know, who can make the best man?" And he's, you know, and the scientist's like, "Yeah, well, I don't know. I think you're going to lose because I can create stuff out of dirt too." And God's like, "Okay, you're on. Let's let's see who wins." And the man stepped down to pick up some dirt, and God said, "Ah, make your own dirt." <laughs> And then, yeah. I mean, so sassy, great. <laughs> but it's, I mean, our, yeah, it's just, I've, I've never, it's just interesting that over the last month, like, I mean, this, this whole idea of um, that, that what we do in this life and our interactions with everyone else and all of what we do is perfected by God uh, in the new heaven and the new earth. I mean, it's not something that you can kind of take lightly. It's not something that you can kind of think about, you know, in a, in a very literal sense because it's impossible for us to try and figure it out. But I find that whole thing fascinating and it's just really interesting that this exact point has come up with Tolkien and he's been able to relate it back to not just really grand kind of stuff, grand philosophy, um, but something as simple as writing a book um, that... It's just amazing that well, what what makes us human is in part our creativity and our our ability to be able to be able to articulate that and to be able to add to um, not not add as in make superior, but to participate in 
is the correct term that I keep using, God's creative work. And it's almost a it's almost a phenomenal thing. Like what what other faith tells you that what you create here on earth, what you that is good that is good, true and beautiful, is awesome. But that's not it. You know, it's 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 part of God's divine plan. So your creativity is going to be, you know, your freedom, you know, because you have free will and your creativity is then, you know, is then taken to its full capacity by God. Like, how awesome is that? Like, we're, that's so cool. Like, you know, what, you know, every little drawing I do, even if it's just a stupid sketch and I hate it and I screw it up and I throw it out, that's still a part of that that's that's still divine that mm. still has a spark mm. of the divine in and it and we'll never we'll never quite understand as niggle we'll never quite understand that until we get until we see until in we the get next there. life what exactly that meant hmm. um all right we have a short amount of time left that went very quickly yeah. which is good um victoria <laughs> do you have any final thoughts um <laughs> Guys, it just you blow me away every single time. If you saw me in the studio, I'm just watching them with awe. Oh, um, yeah. that's not good. <laughs> I think Quick, Luke say something stupid. <laughs> Leroy Jenkins. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness, well, that a go? You're so random. Okay, so the bit <laughs> the bit that I liked the most out of this book, or should I say, not liked, really like, I suppose touched my soul. Oh, that's deep. Uh, the rest of it I really liked because it was intellectually engaging and very creative and stuff like that. But it was this bit here, and it's when Niggle um, first walks into his painting, I suppose, the, the forest that he finds out is his painting. And um, it says here, They were just exquisite leaves, yet they were dated as clear as a calendar. Some of the most beautiful and the most characteristic, the most perfect examples of the Niggle style were seen to have been produced in collaboration with Mr. Parrish. There was no other way of putting it. Okay, and so when you read the story, you find out that his time with Parrish is the most hellish time possible um, in his life. He 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 abhors it. He hates it. Um, that's probably a bit strong, but it does annoy him. Um, and but so, yeah, basically, Parrish has got a limp and he's ungrateful, and he doesn't say thank you when Miss when Niggle gives him a hand doing whatever because he's got a gammy leg and all that sort of yeah, thing. and he feels underappreciated. But basically, it's 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 suffering, I suppose. It's Niggle suffering, but it says that the most beautiful leaves, the most exquisite leaves, come out of this suffering, and I think that's true both in um, a personal way and in a um, higher spiritual religious sense, I suppose, the bigger picture. So firstly, in a personal way, this is sort of like what you guys were talking about with the whole story. I'm just picking a small piece and expanding it in the same way, I suppose. Um, in a small way, it's we, we think about um, sometimes the best art comes out of the most suffering. So I don't know about any of our listeners, whether you keep a diary or something like that, but I do every once in a while. And when I look back at some of the stuff I wrote, the most poignant stuff the stuff that you want to that you think if I die and someone finds this and uh, thinks it's not embarrassing like I think it is they think they'll think the most exquisite pages are the parts where there was suffering where you're reacting in terms of suffering and trying to find something good out of it and the bits where you're happy are sort of you know, I, I don't know I've waddling along um, some bit fluffy writing whatever and um, so that's very true in a personal sense that sometimes the most beautiful art comes out of the, out of suffering. But also on a grander scale, I suppose all I could think of was Felix Culper, Happy Fault. 
So even with um, Adam and Eve's greatest fall, their greatest sin, I suppose pride, um, uh, God made this whole redemptive narrative, this this meta-narrative of salvation. Um, and so it's always about how God is using the bad things, using the suffering, and always working it towards good. So in Niggle's case, it's this time with Parrish, which in the end is so exquisite in producing such beautiful work that Parrish comes back. Just, joins him. Joins him, I suppose, uh, which is really lovely. I loved reading about them getting on. I just I, My ideal book has no co- conflict in it at all <laughs> and, and no complication. I just like it when people get along. Well, that was one of the key parts of narrative is complicated. It is. I know. I'm a terrible English teacher. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that was my two cents worth. I just wanted to point out that, that small part because I think I read it about three times and I thought, that is, that's intense. I need to underline that, which I did. And that's the, I think that's the essence of this book. It's, it's, it's really delightful. It is delightful. It, it, makes you, it makes you think a little bit. And it is just, it is a pleasure to read. It's not like Lord of the Flies or, which can be a bit of a suffering to read. <laughs> I feel so bad. We should write no, an apology to fly. this to what, Mr. Goldman or whatever his name was. I, I don't think he's alive. And quite <laughs> okay. frankly... The yeah, didn't it, didn't it win a Nobel Prize for literature? <laughs> it did, because it was on the front yeah, of that book. Yeah, but the Nobel, you know, I'm a little bit sceptical of the Nobel Prize since they gave Al Gore a Nobel Peace Prize for a slideshow on climate change. But the Nobel Peace Prize is <laughs> different. I like to think that it's... Do you know these, who was one of the other contenders I, for it? Oh, I don't know. There was another contender was a Polish woman who got mission to work in the Warsaw Ghetto and rescued 2,000 children out of there before the Nazis found out and broke all of and her limbs. And the slideshow one. Yes, and the slideshow one. Well, that's <laughs> Fun fact, I've forgotten what her name is. I think her first name is Irene, or I forgot. See, that's I can't the problem. her name. See, that's the problem. You've forgotten her name. I remember we'll her know. first name, <laughs> and it's up on the wa- she's up on the wall at work. Oh, lovely. Yes. Um, all right. Well, I think you, you were almost... You were saying a point there, weren't you? No, I've not forgotten it. Okay, your anyway. point was better. Your point was better. No, my point was that we should finish up because we're 33 minutes in. Oh, goodness. So, uh, that's it. That's Leaf by Niggle, uh, our first talking. And, I mean, the books that we have here have, like, five short stories in them. So, we'll yeah. probably come back to it later at some point. Yeah, yeah they look... Great stories. It's, it's The book is called Tales from the Perilous Realm. They look quite worthwhile. Let's just and, put it um, out there. The other tales in there, if you're interested, are... Where's the contents page? Rover Random, Farmer Giles of Ham, The Adventures of Tom Bombadil. Oh, can we do The Adventures of Tom, Tom Bombadil? Bombadil? That sounds oh, good. Oh, man. That, that's funny because, like... Anyway. Anyway. I'll, I'll, t- I'll talk about it after the show just because I'll take too much time. <laughs> yes, anyway. Um, the Smith... And the final one, apart from Leaf by Neagle, is a Smith of Wooten Major. Mm, and if you're anything like Luke, you'll want to get your hands on this book quite simply because there's a dragon on the front. There's a dragon on the front. <laughs> there's a dragon. With a tiny person and a sword. And the sword's a sword. the size of him. Yes, yes. I think that's, that's Father epic. Giles. That's Father Giles uh, of Ham. Because, oh. yeah, Father Giles is a hobbit. It's Farmer Giles, sorry, not Father Giles. Farmer Giles. <laughs> Your uh, Catholic is showing. Yes. Um, Farmer Giles goes to get, gets called to go beat a dragon. Cool. So, that's yeah, intense. hobbits that's are awesome. Cool. All right. Well, next week or next time, we will be reading Sir Gwen and the Green Knight by Unknown. By Unknown. It must be a medieval text. <laughs> it right? is a medieval text. By Unknown. Well, uh, but, it, but it's fantastic. People attribute it to Chaucer, but, but then again, people don't even think 
Chaucer wrote Chaucer sometimes, so <laughs> I love his story. Like the Shakespeare didn't really write Shakespeare. No, no, no. Like they're, 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 they're not that sure about Chaucer. Okay. Yeah, Chaucer's a bit of a. I'm doing the so-so hand gesture. Come see, come sir. You know. Yeah. We're not Chaucer really sure. they're a little bit less clear on. Yeah. Shakespeare was very clear. We've got a birth certificate. <laughs> Do you have that Chaucer? Do you? <laughs> if I that is your real name, probably anyway, wasn't. I don't know. Someone called Chaucer. <laughs> Oh, I mean, they're they were. to a guy named Chaucer. Like, why would you, why would you just make up a guy named Chaucer? You know what? I'll um dig out my university notes from this text and I'll bring them next yeah, time and handy. um we'll have a little handy. talk about Chaucer and okay. his work. Well, that's what we've got. Somebody next wrote week. Canterbury Tales. That's yeah, true. someone did. Someone made all those HSC students read it. <laughs> it yeah. was a HSC text. It was I missed that dad. boat. I only had to read... Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's been a HSC text in a long time because, oh, classic literature is too hard for the dumb kids. <laughs> Sorry, not politically correct. Classic <laughs> literature is not relevant for young people these days. We should give them stuff like looking for Ella Brandy. Which I also haven't read. Yeah, don't Maybe read Maybe we should do that. <laughs> no! <laughs> Please, no! Okay, this one. This, I, I already... Yeah, but once again, listeners, if there's anything you want us to do, uh, please comment below. Because, you know, yeah. multiple comments below Gibson. all our podcasts Gibson. add to them. Gibson. Yeah. <laughs> Books that you've always wanted to read, but never quite have either been too scared or have not been, had the time yeah. to we'll read. Yeah, we'll do the hard yakka for like you. We'll read it. Don't, don't ask us to read that. Okay. 37 minutes. Let's wrap Whoa. this up. Whoops. Um, yeah. Leaf by Niggle. It was great. You should read it. It's probably your local library or at Basin Books or whatever that bookstore is that that you guys go to. Um, yeah, but that's it. in Sydney. So. Yeah, it's in Sydney. You might not live there. Just, just get it on something. Get it on it's Amazon. Or, eBay, or, or, or one of those places that, that, that aren't slightly evil. Um, <laughs> I, got, I got the eye roll from Kiara then. <laughs> and now, look, he's talking. No, we, we should sign off. Um, but I do I do apologise for the allegorical, anagogical stuff. I don't, oh, know, I don't know if it's true. I'm sorry. Right. No, 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 no. We that's what to, we were missing. We need, to, we need to solve this. Right. Okay, good. So, because... According to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, <laughs> the four senses of Scripture are the allegorical sense. Sorry. Yes. The spiritual sense, the allegorical sense... The moral sense and the anagogical sense. Oops. That is... No, 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 because there's the tropological one. I'm disagreeing with the Catechism of the Catholic Church. <sighs> Just putting that out there. Heretic. Tropological? What does that even mean? I don't know, but that's what was, like, drilled into me in theology. Next, next time we're here, we're going to figure out what tropological Okay, yes, that's means. true. Sounds good. Before Luke starts coughing, which will be in Three about seconds 30 from seconds. Now. So, next week, join us. Bye. 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 That was an episode of Catholics Free from cradio.org.au.